And so, Father, You are indeed a very present help in our time of need. And there are some who come into this building today with greater needs than others, and some who have such pressing needs that it's hard to really wrap their minds around anything else. And so, God, would You meet them as they enter into our worship and as we prepare for the proclamation of Your Word. And would You meet each one of us, Lord God, whether we come in with a heart that is full or a heart that is, is under stress. And be gracious to us, Lord. Draw us into worship with You through Your Son and by the power of Your Holy Spirit. God, would You do that for us, the great privilege of Your people gathering together corporately. We are thankful for the ability to do that, Lord God. We are thankful, God, for uh, the grace that You show us as we come together corporately as Your people. We pray, Father, that You would add Your blessing not only to us this morning, but to our friends, our brothers, our sisters in Christ who are gathered in other congregations here in Indianapolis and abroad as well. Bless them, Lord God. Pour out Your Spirit upon them and their worship and their time together and the proclamation of the Word in their congregations. Father, we have brothers and sisters in Christ who are meeting today in war-torn countries, and we pray that You would meet with them there. We have brothers and sisters in Christ today who are meeting in locations where doing so may be at the cost of their employment. It may be at the cost of their family. It may be at the cost of their very lives. And so we commend these brothers and sisters to you as well, Lord God. We are thankful that we're able to, in as much as we uh, can see at least, Father, to meet in peace. But we pray for our brethren, our friends, those that know Christ and are part of the church of Jesus Christ with us who do not have that privilege, who do not have, uh, Lord, the ability to meet as we meet. And so we commend them to you this morning, and we commend ourselves to you now, Father. We pray that as we open up your word, that you would teach us through your word. We pray, Father, that you would be gracious to our missionaries, thankful for them and for the work that they are doing, thankful for our partnership with them. We pray, God, you would be a blessing to them, that you would pour out your Spirit upon them and their lives and their ministries, wherever they may be, whether they are in a sending ministry or in a going ministry. Father, uh, I pray for, for Kara Lantrip, who I just spoke with this morning, who is here worshiping with us for the last Sunday before she leaves uh, for Mozambique. Pray your blessing upon her, Lord God, as she now uh, returns back uh, to the country where she serves and engages in the ministry that you have given to her there. Be gracious to her in her travels. Be gracious to her, Father, as she reacclimates to life and ministry there. We pray for Josh and Michelle Krumenacher in particular this week as well and ask your blessing upon them and their children as they transition from a role here at the church as a pastor for uh, middle school ministry for Josh and Lord as he now leads his family and Michelle partners with him and their children as well uh, in missions and as they prepare now and begin their fundraising for work in Burundi, Africa. Be a blessing to them, Lord God, with the goal of being there in July. Help them as they raise funds, as they prepare themselves, as they train, as they become equipped for that ministry. Help us to partner with them in, in uh, unique ways, Lord God, where we have the opportunity and to certainly be prayerful for them. So we commend Josh and Michelle Krumenacher and their children to you today, Lord. Would you add your blessing to them and to their lives and to their ministry and the ministry that you have set before them as well. Now, Lord God, we commend ourselves to you as we open up your word. Teach us through your word, God. Take this text from Titus and equip us, Lord God, and challenge us and, 
and rebuke us where we need to be rebuked and lift us up and help us, Lord God, uh, to be men and women, young people who see a text like this, hear a text like this, and put a text like this into practice in our lives to the very best of our abilities. I pray that for us as we turn to your word now, and we pray it in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen and amen. Next week, we will begin a series through uh, the book of Habakkuk in the Old Testament, a very small prophetic book that will allow us to begin to look at some, I think, very important and pressing matters uh, in our own lives here in the 21st century. The, the prophecy of Habakkuk is a unique prophecy. It's Habakkuk essentially complaining to God, a discourse between Habakkuk and God, and God responding to Habakkuk. And Habakkuk has the same questions that many of us have. Why does it look like the evil prosper? Why do you bring punishment on people that we think are good people? Why do you do the things that you're doing? What does justice in the kingdom of God look like? And so we'll have an opportunity to look at that. We'll spend a couple, couple of months in, in uh, and uh, the prophecy of Habakkuk, and, uh, and then we'll turn our attention uh, back to the New Testament uh, in this year as we look at uh, Paul's letter to the Colossians. Today, I just have kind of a one-off sermon uh, as, we, as we move into the new year, and we're going to do that from Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. 2024, obviously, is upon us now. There's no reason for us to talk about how it snuck up on us, right? It always sneaks up on us. Uh, new Year's always seem to come around annually, and every single year they seem to sneak up on us. So we can all admit that 2024 snuck up on us, and here we are entrenched in this new year. And I think the question that we may want to ask ourselves is simply this, what does this new year look like for us? We can't know the future. We don't know whether we're going to live to the end of this year. We don't know what will happen this year. But I think it's good for us to stop and to reflect and to consider what a new year might hold for us personally, corporately as a local church body. And I think this text from Titus chapter 3 will help us to kind of focus our attention on some things that the Apostle Paul would have us focus our attention upon. And so I'm going to ask us to set a goal for 2024 here at LifePoint. Number one, to rejoice in our salvation if we've come to know Christ. And we'll talk a little bit about that here this morning. Those of us who are here this morning, friends, who know Christ, we have been transformed by God. And there has been a change in our lives. And it's something that we should stop and reflect upon occasionally. And we should rejoice in what God has done for us in Christ. And so I'm going to challenge us to do that in 2024. And not just today and not just this week, but as we move into 2024, that we would set that in the back of our minds, maybe even set a reminder that we would be a thankful people for what God has done for us, those of us who are here who have come to know Christ. And also that we would consider these reminders that the Apostle Paul sets before us. And then I'm just going to challenge us all to consider putting to memory Titus chapter 3 verses 1 through 7. I have already memorized part of that as part of my own uh, routine in, in, in Scripture uh, some years ago. But the first part of it I haven't and I've been working on that and setting that to memory. And I think it will do us good to have a passage like this set in our minds and, and memorized for those of you who are willing to do that. Many years ago, 15 years ago exactly, uh, when I came, or almost exactly, when I came uh, to LifePoint uh, to serve as uh, one of your pastors here, Pastor Tom Maiden, who was the lead pastor before me, gave kind of a final sermon. And in that sermon, he preached from 1 Peter chapter 1. 
and a section of that text, he invited us to memorize, to set it to memory. And I did that. And uh, I can't tell you, I mean, I don't want to overemphasize this, but it has had an important impact in my life over 15 years. I've come back to that text time and time again, both in my preaching and in my own personal walk with Christ. And so I'd encourage you to be memorizing Scripture, but I'm going to set before you a challenge that you would consider uh, memorizing Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, as we walk through 2024 together. And so that's our text for this morning. Titus is in the New Testament. If you're newer to your Bibles, it's one of Paul's letters that he writes to the church. This one is a specific letter to a young man by the name of Titus. You'll find it towards the end of the New Testament. Kind of hard to find in there. It's a smaller letter, so I'd encourage you, if you have your Bible with you, you can go to the index and see that. If you have your iPad or whatever with you, you can punch that button. It'll take you right to it. But we're in the New Testament in Paul's letter to Titus, and we're in chapter 3 this morning. So let's stand together, shall we? Let's honor God as we read directly from His Word. Titus chapter 3 verses 1 through 7. And this is what Paul has to say to Titus. This is what Paul has to the people on the island of Crete. And this is what Paul has to say to us. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Amen. You can be seated. Thank you. And so here's Paul's admonition to us, and it's an admonition that comes first to Titus and then to the people on the island of Crete. If you've read the letter to Titus, you know that Paul left Titus, a young man who Paul had trained for ministry, who had come to know Christ under Paul's ministry, and had come alongside Paul and become a ministry partner with him. And so Paul had trained Titus, and now Paul has left the island of Crete, but he has left Titus there behind him to do work because there are people who have come to know Christ on the island of Crete. And so he leaves them there, and chapter 1 tells us Paul leaves them, uh, Titus there with a very specific task, and that task is he is to go to each one of the cities where a church has begun, and he is to appoint elders in every one of those churches. He is to appoint local leaders in that church so that the church can be taught, can be equipped, can be trained, and uh, can, be, can be built up. And so Titus has been left on the island of Crete with that specific task. He is a leader there. Whether or not he's a leader over all these churches or whether he's a leader over one church in one of the cities, we do not know. We know that Paul has left him there with this commission. Go to these cities. Go to these those new churches and help them to establish leaders, elders in each one of those local congregations. Now Paul continues to write to Titus. He'll write this three-chapter letter to him. I can only encourage you to read this letter if you've never read it. It is incredibly practical. 
what Paul has to say to Titus. And here in chapter 3, he gets very practical in saying, this is what it's like to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And here's what I want you to remind the people of Crete. I want you to remind them these important matters. This is the, these things that need to be understood as a new believer in Christ. This is how you want to live as a Christian. And so I think it's important for us, particularly as we enter into a new year, to consider these things, these apostolic admonitions from the Apostle Paul. But then he closes this little section by saying, remember who you once were. Don't forget who you once were. Remember that and put into practice these new concepts of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. We do well, friends, to remember at times who we were before we came to know Christ. And what our life looked like before we came to know Christ. And so, if you're following in your notes, I've entitled this section, A Somewhat Gentle Yet Direct Reminder, Sort Of. And here's what I mean by that. Paul is being very gentle here. And he says, I want you to remind the people of these things. That this not, doesn't sound like it's this grand, strong admonition, right? That he is, he is commanding Titus, you will teach these things. And yet, friends, we need to remember that this is an apostolic word. This comes from the Apostle Paul. And therefore, it's a gentle reminder, but only sort of, because it's coming from an apostle. It's coming from one who has been called out by Christ and therefore has the authority to call us and to to admonish us to do what he's called us to do. And so, therefore, it's a somewhat gentle reminder, but only sort of, because it's coming from the Apostle Paul. And we should take that and we should uh, recognize the authority by which these teachings come to us. And so, let's break down and look at what Paul uh, has uh, to say to us here this morning. He gives these believers on the island of Crete these reminders, and the reminders for you and the reminders for me as well, even here in the 21st century. First, he says, be submissive to rulers and authorities. Be submissive to rulers and authorities. And here, some of us, we already begin to bristle, right? Because we're Americans, the vast majority of us in here, and we have freedoms, and we have the right to speak into our government, and we can vote people into office and vote people out of office. Understand that in Paul's day, people had no idea what that was like. No idea. This is the grand new experiment, the United States right? We've been around for a couple hundred years under this representative democracy where we get to speak into the government, where we have a constitution, where we're able to vote and, and, and decide, at least to some extent, who's going to be our leaders. The people on the island of Crete, including the Apostle Paul, they had none of those rights. They were under an empire, and that empire was the Roman Empire, and they had an emperor, and if the emperor wanted someone dead, they died. And if he wanted them to live, they got to live. And that's just the way it was, and that's how it was for so many of these people. Even the people of Israel, the Jews, had grown up, the vast majority of them, or had been trained under this concept of a monarchy, right? There's one person who is king, or one person who is queen, or there's one person who is emperor, and therefore you just had to do what they told you to do. Even in this type of relationship, 
Paul and the scriptures do admonish believers, even in the first century there, that you are to obey the government in as much as the government does not cause you to sin. If they cause you to sin or they're calling you into sinful behavior, you were to stand up even under an empire and say, this far and no further. Now, we have the ability to do that here within our own country in ways that they could never have even experienced. And so I know that some will bristle under this and say, you're telling us to adhere to a government that at times is immoral. Friends, every government is immoral at times, every government that's ever existed. Now, I will say this. I will say that our current government, it does at times tell us, even as believers, that we are to believe something that is patently false. It's patently false. That we are to acknowledge things as if they're reality when they are not reality. And we are to not only acknowledge them, but we are to celebrate them. We are to engage in a lie. And to be followers of Jesus Christ is to be in love with the truth. And therefore, there are times when we have to say, this far and no further, right? We will not engage in that type of activity. Now, we have the ability then to vote and to try to vote new people in who won't tell us of those kind of things. Again, Paul, the Cretans, no ability to do that. They had to decide, how are we going to submit and where are we going to say this far and no further? Now, it would take an entire message and I still wouldn't be able to cover the whole thing. What does this look like in the United States in the 21st century? It looks different, I think, for so many of us in different ways. You will have to decide as a follower of Jesus Christ how you're going to submit in these ways. But as a general pattern, friends, we are not to be people who are fomenting rebellion. We are not to be people who are saying, if you're not a Christ follower, I will not obey you. If you're not doing the things I want them done, I will not obey you. We do not have that authority. So somewhere we're going to have to figure out where that line is where we say this far and no further. But as a general pattern, the Apostle Paul, in his gentle but not so gentle reminder, sort of, tells us we are to be those who submit to authority who submit to those who God has placed over us in leadership. And we are to be doing that in a way that honors God first, but then honors those who lead us as well. There's different ways to go about doing that. There will be some times where we're going to say, no, we're not going to do that. And we're going to have to make some of those decisions both individually and I suspect the day is coming, maybe in our own lifetimes, when even corporately we're going to have to decide where does the church of Jesus Christ stand on these issues and are we willing to even stand up against government authorities when it comes to certain issues. When that day comes, I think the Lord will make it clear to us. And so we need to be cognizant of this reality. Paul is calling these men and women who are under an empire that is a violent empire that at times will persecute the very believers that Paul is speaking to. And Paul is saying to them, we should be submissive to rulers and to authorities. So that's the first thing he wants the people to be reminded about. Second, he says something that sounds like maybe he's just doubling down on that, right? Be obedient. But I think here Paul has something else in mind. He's already addressed the issue of submission to rulers and authorities. By obedience here, I think what he's talking about here is the local church, and that's borne out in some other texts in Scripture as well. Hebrews chapter 13 in, in particular tells us that we are to be people who honor those in the local congregation who have been set in leadership 
leadership over us. Here at LifePoint, we call those people elders. That's what they called them in Paul's day as well. We are to be obedient to them. Now, that one can make us bristle at times too, right? Once again, we're Americans. We have freedoms. Why do we have certain people who get to make decisions when we don't get a, a voice in all of those kind of things? And so Paul is calling these new believers to consider a new way of life. And that is to submit willingly, not because they are forced to, but willingly to those who have been placed over them. And within the local congregation, these elders that Titus is beginning to set up, to be obedient to them. Now, is that obedient in everything? Of course not. Not if they're teaching you to sin. Not if they're teaching you false doctrine. We don't obey false doctrine because it comes from an elder or a pastor. But in general, as a general pattern, Paul is saying to them, let's be obedient people. Now, friends, let me, I can only speak for LifePoint itself. At LifePoint, we're under a plurality of elders, right? I'm the lead pastor here, but I don't get everything I want. I don't get to walk into an elders meeting and say, here's how things are going to do. We're going to be done. Now you all go out and you sail the ships that I've just now built. I don't do that. I couldn't do that. You wouldn't want me to do that. Trust me. You don't want to invest that kind of power in me or any one individual. This is why the scriptures speak of a plurality of elders, multiple men who are leading local congregations. Paul tells Titus, go into these cities and set up elders, both in English and the original language. That's a plural term. Not one guy over everybody. He doesn't say, Titus, you're a follower of Christ. I've trained you. You're over the island of Crete. You get to do whatever you want to do. You tell them how to worship. You tell them everything that needs to be done. No. He says, you go into each one of these cities and you help to establish these plurality of elders so that these men can lead the local congregation and, quite frankly, so the congregations can learn to be submissive and obedient to these leaders. Now, what does that look like at LifePoint? I can speak as honestly as I can, as I can speak right now and say this. I know every one of our elders, both those who are sitting elders who are serving an a elder term right now and those who have served as elders, and I can say these are men who love Jesus Christ. We have not yet, by God's grace, and I hope it never happens, had to discipline an elder publicly and say, this elder has strayed from the truth or done these things. If that happens, we'll have to address that, obviously. These are men who love Christ. These are men who are committed to this local congregation. These are men who meet once a month and meet for multiple hours praying for this congregation and doing the work of leading and shepherding this local congregation. They do that in partnership with our pastor elders, but we serve simply as elders as well. It is not me and all the elders. It is the elders, and I'm one of the elders here at LifePoint Church. And they do this to the very best of their ability. Do they make mistakes at times? We do. Are there times we have to say, we were going in this direction and we think we probably made a mistake and we need to go in this direction? We have had to do that and will have to do that again. These are individual men who are individual men who make mistakes, who at times may offend somebody, who at times may say something they wish they hadn't said, at times may say something that they shouldn't have said that they have to be called to account for and then have to apologize for and say, forgive me, brother or sister, for what I've done or for what I've said. That's the reality, right? Elders are not saints any more than the members of a congregation are saints. All of us who know Christ are saints in Jesus Christ. And so what is Paul saying? He's saying to these believers, mostly new believers in Crete, he's saying, I want you to remind them, Titus, that they should be submissive to the authorities. 
I want you to remind them that they should be obedient to those who are placed over them, that they, their, their, their actions should not be a burden to those who are trying to lead them. Now, are there times that we have to speak as a congregation into an individual elder or to the elders and say, here's some things I'm concerned about, here's some things I want to know about? Absolutely, and we want to give you the opportunities to do those things. But friends, we also have to remember that there is a burden in leadership, and at times not everything can be told, right? Some people can say, this happened to me, and they can tell you everything where the elders are bound by confidentiality, and they can't tell you everything. And so you're hearing one side of a story. And so we have to be cognizant of these realities. These are men who want to serve and want to care and want to love and want to do it well who in the process at times are making mistakes and we're all trying to figure this this stuff out as followers of Jesus Christ. The general admonition from Paul is submit to ruling authorities and be obedient to those who God has placed over you in the local congregation. Now, friends, let me just say this and then I promise I'll move on from this point. If elders at LifePoint or any other congregation begin to teach false doctrine, the church has to stand up to that, right? Just like if a government begins to do things that are absolutely immoral and force everyone into that immorality, and there are times I think we get very, very close to that, right? We get very close to that. There are times we have to say, no, we're not going to obey that. We're not going down that line, Now, that doesn't mean every individual gets to say, here's what I think about secondary and tertiary matters, and therefore the elders have to agree with me. That won't fly. That can't happen. But on primary issues, if the church is being led astray into false doctrine, it is the responsibility of the congregation to say, this far and no further. Just as it's a responsibility as members of of an organization or a government to eventually say, this far and no further. And so we have to keep that in the back of our mind. Paul is not saying carte blanche, no matter what anybody tells you to do, if they're a leader, you have to do it. That's not what he's saying. But he's saying there should be a general tenor of submissiveness and willingness to accept the reality that our leaders are human beings and they're not going to do everything right and they're not going to do everything we want them to do. But we should, as a general pattern, honor them and submit to them in as much as it doesn't cause us to engage in sinful activity. And so Paul is calling these new believers to these realities. Submissiveness to rulers and authorities, obedience to those who are placed in in leadership over you in the local congregation. Then he says, be ready for every good work. To be people who are ready to engage in the body of Christ with the gifts and the talents that God has given them. Be ready for every single good work, he says. This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ, he says to these new believers. You are submissive, you are obedient, but you are ready. That word there in in the original language means kind of to be on the edge of your seat, right? You're ready to jump into action. You're ready to engage in the ministry that God has given us to do. And so we are to be people who are ready for every single good work. Remember what Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount. He says to believers, to those who have come to know him, he says, you are the light of the world. Remember that? You're the light of the world. And he says, we don't, in practical terms, take a light, bring it into our home, and take a bushel basket and put it over the light. He says, no, what we do with the light is we take it into the home and we put it in a prominent place so it shines light all over the entire house so that we can see. He says, you're the salt of the earth, right? You are, you are giving saltiness to the earth. 
And therefore, he says, we as followers of Christ are to be people who do good works, and we do them publicly. And we do them publicly so that Jesus Christ might be honored, so that God may be glorified, Jesus says. It's not one of those things that we're always supposed to do everything we do and and not tell anybody about it or be hidden about it. There are some things that we do that are meant to be public so that people will see it and give glory to God. Now, obviously, that's a difficult thing for us sometimes as human beings because we have a tendency to want the glory for ourselves. But this is what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ, that we are ready to do every good work, that we are ready to be the light of the world, that we are ready to be salt into a world that needs flavor, that needs to have the Word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ permeating into every part of it. So Paul's saying, remind the people to be like this, submissive people, obedient people, but people who are ready for every single good work, anxious, ready to go, and to engage in the good works of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now before he says, speak evil of no one, Some of the translations will say, slander no one. Now, listen, this is a hard one. This is just a hard one for us to actually accomplish in our lives, to not slander people, to not speak evil of people, to figure out the balance between addressing sinful behavior without slandering somebody, without without, uh, spreading information about somebody. And there's a fine line there somewhere, and I don't always know where it's at. We can only do our best. I can say this, at least for myself, and I'm guessing it's true for you as well. I know when what I'm saying is slander. I know where my intentions are. I know when I want to hurt somebody rather than help somebody. I know when I want information out there about somebody that I want them to know that is salacious information or salacious information that I want somebody else to know. I know that, and you probably know that as well. And I also know when I'm actually trying to help, and I don't want to be slanderous. And I know that there's a fine line there. Paul knows that too. He gets all that as well. That was true in the first century just like it's true in the 21st century. But what's the general pattern here? We're to speak evil of nobody. We're not to slander people. And this has been around for a long time, friends. The psalmist in Psalm 15 says, Lord, who can live in your temple? Who might live on your holy hill? The one who speaks the truth from his heart and has no slander on his tongue, he says. Who does his neighbor no wrong and casts no slur on his fellow man who despises those who do wicked things. Now see, isn't that interesting? We're not to speak evil of people and we're not to slander them, but we are to be able to recognize wickedness. We're to be able to recognize that and we're to say, I reject it, right? Who does not honor a wicked man, but does honor those who fear the Lord, who keeps their oath even when it hurts, right? They've said something, they've sworn to something, and even though now they wish they hadn't, they keep their oath who lend their money without usury, without charging incredible amounts of interest, who will not accept a bribe against the innocent, the psalmist says. He or she who does these things will never be shaken, he says. They'll never be shaken. We are to be people who do not speak maliciously of others, who do not slander other people who do not dishonor people who were created in the image of God for the joy of bringing people down so that we can be lifted up. This is a difficult, difficult one for us, very difficult one for us that we need to consider. Number five, he says, we are to avoid 
quarreling. We are to avoid quarreling. We're not to quarrel over nonsensical things. We're not to always be people who say, I want my way. My way is the right way. We're not to be quarrelsome. We are to be peaceable people, he says. Now listen, are there things that we need to discuss and debate? Absolutely in life, whether it has to do with the church or outside of the church. But there's a difference between trying to come to a conclusion and simply quarreling for the sake of quarreling. And Paul says that shouldn't be the behavior of a Christ follower, that we are to avoid it at all costs. To the Romans, Paul says, live at peace with all people as much as it depends on you. As much as it depends on you. Some people won't live at peace with us. We cannot change other people. But we can consider our own actions and our own ability to, to not engage in quarrelsome debates with people. Now, friends, this is, this is peppered all throughout the New Testament, where we're told not to be people who argue over myths and, and, and pursue teachings that are just wacky, weird teachings and try to make them our own and then try to invest them in other people, to quarrel about silly things. We are to avoid all of these things, the Apostle Paul tells these new believers. We are, as a general pattern, to be people who do not squabble about things. Paul says to Timothy, another young man that he had trained and had left in ministry in Ephesus, he says, the Lord's servant must not quarrel. Instead, he must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. That's hard stuff, isn't it? Able to teach and not resentful. Those who oppose them, he must gently instruct in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth, that they will come to their senses and they will escape the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. Friends, so many times when we're arguing about the, the peculiarities of biblical doctrine with non-believers, I think we forget this is a person who is on their way to hell if they do not come to encounter Jesus Christ. That should be foremost in our mind, not making our point, not winning the argument, but understanding that these people have been taken captive as we were once taken captive by our enemy. And we should consider that and be mindful of that. We should avoid that type of quarreling. We should be gentle. Jesus said, the meek will inherit the earth. Not those who take the bull by the horns. Not those who are great leaders. Not those who will get their way no matter what. Not those who are the best, most prominent people in the world. That's not what he's saying. He's saying it is the meek who will inherit the earth. This is what we should be striving for. Gentleness, meekness. Not becoming the biggest person on campus, so to speak, right? But to demonstrate a gentle and humble and meek attitude. And then finally he says, show perfect courtesy toward all people. Or in some translations, show true humility. That word in the original language, it just depends on where it's at in the sentence and what the context is. Sometimes it's translated peaceable. Sometimes it's translated humble. Sometimes it's translated where we are to be these people, like Paul says here, courteous people. Friends, when I do my premarital counseling and at times my marital counseling as well, one of the things I always stress is, be courteous to your spouse. Don't forget, right, just because they're your spouse and they now live with you, that you're not to be courteous and kind and compassionate towards them, right? If you, you bump into them in the hallway of your house, don't just say, well, it's my wife. I don't need to say anything to her, right? Be courteous to one another. It goes so far in a marriage. 
If we can just learn courtesy to one another, kindness, gentleness toward one another. And it works in amazing ways outside of marriages too. But we need to remember that just because we partnered with this person for life doesn't mean we take them for granted for life and we owe them none of the courtesies that we owe to other people. You wouldn't bounce into somebody in the hallway here and just walk on. You would say, I'm sorry, forgive me. So uh, we just need to be courteous people. Paul says, offer perfect courtesy. And by that, he doesn't mean you have to be perfect people. He means in every instance where courtesy is called for, offer it perfectly. When you see the opportunity, be a courteous person. Be gentle. Be kind. Notice these are incredibly practical, but incredibly difficult, aren't they? But this is what Paul is saying to new believers on the island of Crete. Be submissive to your leaders. Be obedient to those who God has placed over you. Be ready for every good work that God puts before you. Speak evil of no one. Slander nobody. Avoid quarreling when you can avoid that. Be gentle towards one another and show perfect courtesy toward all people or show true humility toward all people. Here's some reminders for us for 2024 and into the future. These are reminders from the apostle of Jesus Christ who says these are good things. To live like this is to live like a follower of Jesus Christ. But that's not all that he says. He says that we should also remember who we once were. As he lays out this list and says, here's the reminders of how we should live for Christ, he also says, remember who you once were. Friends, you, if you know Christ here today, are not what you once were. Now, you're not what you will be either. We haven't come all the way, but you are not what you once were. God has gotten a hold of you and transformed you. That's why he can say, for we ourselves, Paul, Titus, others, were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures, living our lives in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But, he says, when the kindness and love and the mercy and the loving kindness of God came upon us, He saved us, not because of things that we had done, right? Good works that we had done in righteousness. Now, that's a strange one in the context here, right? Because what has Paul just now told us to do? Be ready to do what? Every good work. Now what does he say? But you were saved not because of your good works. That's a perplexing one, particularly, I think, for new believers. Do we do good works so that God will love us and save us? The answer to that is no, because it's futile. You'll never do enough of them. But after you've come to know Christ by the mercy of God, who has renewed you and regenerated you by the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, then we are to be people who do good works, right? We are God's workmanship, Paul says, created for good works in Christ, which God has given to us from the beginning of time. Friends, when you came to know Christ, if you know Christ today, you did not catch Jesus off guard. He didn't say, "Why? I didn't see that coming. Now I got a few things I got to teach this person, and here's some good works I got to get a bit, and I got to give them a gift so that they can do those things. Now we got some things to do. No, 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 no. These are works that God set before you before the foundation of the world. Now wrap your mind around that one. I can't. We are God's workmanship created for good works in Christ. But those good works do not save us. They cannot save us. They never could save us. So it has to be on the other side of salvation that Paul's talking about here. 
And he is telling us that we are to be people who are willing to do those good works, who remember that our good works never saved us. We need to remember who we once were, friends. We need to remember who we now are in Jesus Christ. Paul understands that. Look what Paul has to say about who he was outside of Christ, and in fact, who he now is when he's not living in Christ. Romans chapter 7, for I do not understand my own actions. I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law. I agree that God is right and that that is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. He's saying, listen, I have been transformed, and I'm continuing to do things I wish I wouldn't have done, but I know that I'm born again because I don't want to do them. And so it's sin living in me. It's the sin nature that's still in me that is working against me. I have a desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Outside of Christ, we cannot do these things. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Paul's saying, I am fighting a sin nature, and so are you, and so am I. He's no different from us than that, even as an apostle of Jesus Christ. He's fighting a sin nature, but he's remembering, this is who I am outside of Christ, and this is who I am inside of Christ. And we need to remember that, friends. We need to take some time occasionally. Maybe 2024 is a good time to do that, to stop and just remember, this is who I was before I came to know Christ. And listen, this list that Paul has given us to remind, to remind us, we can do none of it. You can accomplish none of it outside of a relationship with Jesus Christ. You just can't. You can try for a while. You may be a peaceable person for a while, but you're not going to do it as God has called you to do it outside of a relationship with Jesus Christ. Therefore, as John Owen, the great theologian, said, we need to be killing sin. Because if we don't, sin is going to be killing us, friends. Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. And you know that from your life, and I know it from my life. It gets a hold of us, and it drags us down, as Paul just now described. And so we need to address it. And we need to remember who we are in Christ Jesus, and we need to rejoice in what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. Because, Paul says, God has stepped into our world and He has saved us. How did He do that? He tells us, not by our good works, but according to His mercy. Because God is merciful, we've come to know Christ. He did it. How? By the washing of renewal or regeneration, right? You are a new creation in Christ if you've come to know Christ. The old is gone. Behold, Paul says, the new has come. Something dramatic changed in your life when you came to know Christ, and you look in the mirror the next day, and you look the same way. But you are a new creation in Christ. Regeneration. It's a beautiful word in the original language here in the Bible. It's a beautiful word in English. You have been regenerated. There's something going on in you that's transforming you from one degree of God's glory to the next degree of God's glory. It's a transformation that's taking place in our lives. How does it happen? God washed us and renewed us by the Spirit of Christ. That's how He did it. He washed us and He renewed us. And now, Paul says, He has poured out His Spirit upon us, not just a little bit, but richly, he says, right? God doesn't give little pieces of the Holy Spirit to us and say, I'm going to give you this much, but then you've got to prove yourself. And if you prove yourself, I'll give you no. No, He's a good giver. He just gives us of the Spirit richly. He pours out the Spirit into our lives. Now, we have a tendency at times to quench that Spirit, but it's not because God has been 
smug or been particular about giving us the Spirit. He has richly poured out the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Now we are justified, right? We are made right with God according to hope that He has given us. It's a hope of eternal life, he says. Friends, we would do well at times to just stop and remember we are not what we once were, but we're also not now what we will be, right? There's more coming. You're not always going to fight your sin nature. That day ends someday when we step into eternity. And so we have to take time, I think, at times, not to browbeat ourselves and think, what a horrible human being I was outside of Christ, but to remember what Christ has done for us. Every spring, I write either a letter, I used to do letters, now I do a text, to two of my brothers who over four decades ago took the time, one year of my life, and shared the gospel with me time and time and time again as I rejected it and rejected it and rejected it and rejected it until one day it made sense to me and I came to know Christ. And I don't remember what day that was, I just remember it was the spring of 1979. A lot of you in here are saying, 1979, that's a long time ago. It was a long time ago. I was a teenager, and I've told you this before. Friends, I cannot stress more strongly how real this is. I was headed down a path to destruction, and you don't need to know the particulars about it, but I was an absolute mess, and God got a hold of me, and it took a few years for me to begin to work my way through that by the power of God, and I'm far from perfect today, but God got a hold of me and transformed me. And so I take the time every year to write to these two brothers and just say, thank you. Thank you for sharing the gospel with me because it has changed my life in ways I could. They're incalculable how God has changed my life from those years. And I don't look back at myself and think, what a horrible human being I was. I was just a teenage. I was a punk. I was just one of those kids doing really, really stupid stuff. And God got a hold of me and transformed me. And at times, it's just good to stop and remember that and to say, this is what God has done for us, to refocus my energy, for us to refocus our energy and to remember who we were and what God has done for us, to rejoice in our salvation. That's what Paul's calling them to do. This is what God has done for you. This is what God has done to transform your life. John Newton, slave trader, then hymn writer, Amazing Grace, many other wonderful hymns, said this as he was about to die. I am old now and I remember very few things. Many of you know this quote because it's a beautiful quote. I'm old now. I remember very few things. But two things I do remember, that I am a sinner and that God is a great Savior. I'm a sinner, but Jesus Christ is a great Savior. We need to remember that, friends. We need to rejoice in our salvation. We have this reminder to fix our focus for 2024, to be primed for the faith, as it were, because, friends, we're in an army <clears throat> if we're followers of Jesus Christ, and there's a battle to be waged, and it's not a battle with fleshly items of warfare, but it's a spiritual battle that Paul tells us about, and we are to be armed, and these spiritual weapons are able to pull down strongholds in our lives. And so we need to remember that, and we need to be engaged in that. Let me just close with this final illustration. My father entered the army in 1941, and he was immediately sent 
to Iceland for about eight months to train for winter warfare. It's a good place to do that. And so for eight months, they trained for winter warfare. And then they were sent to Ireland. And there they did some additional training with the British uh, uh, regiment. And there, then he had some times to go into London and do some other things. And he told stories about uh, life in the army for the first couple of years was just training and training and training. And then R&R going into London and doing some other things. Now, it wasn't pleasant. There was a blitzkrieg going on. All that stuff was happening, right? But then in 1944, on July 29th, they took his company, he was a first sergeant over a heavy weapons uh, company of mortars and machine guns, and they put him on a boat along with the rest of the Third Army, and they transported them to a place called Normandy. And they dropped him off on the beaches of Normandy at D plus 29. The beaches had been secured, and then they told them, you're going to break out from this, and you're going to go through the hedgerows of southern France, and you are going to fight an enemy that is entrenched and fighting for their lives. And your goal is Berlin, and that's what you need to do. As my father told me and some of my brothers these stories, he said, it is an amazing thing how fixed your attention becomes when you step out from a beachhead and you step into enemy territory, and all of a sudden you're fighting every single day for almost 365 days of his life, seven major battles before they entered into Berlin, focused Now, on all the training and all that they needed to do, by the time they got to Berlin, friends, 30% of their company, they were dead. They were dead. That has an amazing ability to fix your focus. And so this is what I'm asking us to do in 2024. Fix your focus on your faith and what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. We're at war, and it's time for us to fix our focus. Let's memorize Titus 3, 1 through 7. Let's put it into our lives. Let's live as God has called us to live as followers of Jesus Christ. Let's remember our salvation. Let's remember who we were and who we are now in Jesus Christ. Let's rejoice in all of those things. I was going to show you that I have this memorized now, not to be impressive, but just to show you I'll do my part, but I've run out of time, so I'm not going to do that. Trust me, I've been working on this and getting this memorized, and I'll call you at times during this year to think about going back to this text and memorizing it. Friends, let's purpose to live out Titus 3, 1 through 7 in 2024. Let's fix our focus as followers of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. God, I pray that you would help us to do that, to be faithful to you in these things. Lord, that you would give us the strength and the encouragement to live out our faith as you have called us to live out our faith, Lord God to be those who honor you and your word by putting it into practice in our lives. God, help us to be men, women, young people like that. I pray that, and I ask that you would give us the strength and the encouragement to do it and to enact it out, and I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.